Hello and welcome to Listen Carefully. I'm your host, Nathan Jolly, and my guest today is Lanka. Lanka is one of the biggest pop exports that Australia has seen in decades. Her 2008 song, The Show, featured in hundreds and hundreds, literally hundreds, of movies, TV shows, ads. It was everywhere for quite a while. Anyway, because of that, we talk about syncs and sync deals, which basically means a synchronization deal, which is just an industry way of saying that one of her songs was put in a movie or a TV show or an advertisement. Lenka's new album, Introspectral, comes out this Friday, and we begin by chatting about that. Okay, well, let's start with a new album. So in terms of the songwriting for it, yeah. first of all, how long of a time span did it take you to write these songs? Because I know you also have a few singles that you put out like over the past few years. Was this its own project? It's true. Um, yeah, I, I definitely, well, I guess I had a few songs up my sleeve and I had been trying out a model of not release, not working on an album and just releasing single by single. And I did three of those and and then I decided actually that was annoying. So then I started just to just go, all right, well, if I write a song, I'll just save it. And um, after a while there was enough to, to think, okay, well, this is probably going to turn into a, an album. So it's probably been about two years of that. And then in the last six months, I just really then focused on making sure that there was enough for a full album. And once I felt like there was a bit of a concept tying it together, a bit of a through line or a journey or something, then I kind of um, finished off by adding a, the last few songs. Because, you know, like I'm not really a full-on concept album person type artist, but it is nice to have a point to the record in a way. Like you want it to have a, a little bit of an overarching either sonic style or themic point to it. Why are you releasing it otherwise? So why does it exist together, you know? So once I figured out what that was, then I was like, all right, and like I reached out to Julian Hamilton from the presets because it was getting this little bit more of a dancey vibe happening and said I, I, I'd like to write with you and um, I had, you know, I was like, it's got this idea of a spectrum. And so I had all this, I, it slowly came together that there was more um, information and more um, themically tying it together. And then I had to fill in the, the gaps kind of thing. So in in a short answer, two years, I'd say. Right. Yeah. And do you discard songs along the yes. way when you're writing something? Yeah. I do. I have a lot of songs that um, are quite depressing. And I choose not to <laughs> go ahead with them when it comes to the studio. I'm like, um, do I really want to do that song? It's really sad. And I wrote it in a really weak time and I don't really want to drag out those feelings all the time. Then there's other songs that start off more negative, but I kind of claw myself towards something a bit more optimistic during the song, like, you know, by the, a later chorus or something. I am like giving myself therapy kind of, then those ones do make it. But yeah, there's a lot that don't make it. And it's really interesting when I look back through, when I look back through my little like scribbles of lyric books or my folders of demos, um, they're pretty sad, the songs that don't make it. Which is very funny because your albums are very upbeat. So is that a conscious choice? A little bit, partly for myself, like because I just 
It's really funny because I actually quite like listening to sad music. Like I, I like other artists that delve into darker feelings, but I just am a little bit allergic to doing it a lot myself. I can have dashes of it. It's partly because I just, I guess, as a person, don't really want to put out any negativity into the world. So I don't want to be that type of artist either. And partly because I do feel a little bit of not pressure exactly, but maybe expectation or just that knowing that fans of my music really like and rely on that positivity and they would be disappointed (laughs) to release a whole lot of sad sap stuff. Yeah, they can get that from Elliot Smith or somewhere else. Yeah, which is where I get it from too. (laughs) I really love, I know you said like you don't really make concept albums, but I really love your record Shadows, which is very kind of gentle and soft. Thank you. That is a bit more of a concept album. Yeah, one of my faves. And what made you do that after two albums of like very kind of upbeat kind of piano-led pop? Yeah, well, a big part of it was that I was pregnant and then had a little baby. So my world was quite quiet and I was feeling very maternal and wanted to do lullabies Um, and only had a certain amount of energy to give to it as well. I I wasn't in the mood to go out and dance and tour and things like that. So I recorded that actually. A lot of that with um, Tom Schutzinger, who was the drummer in Dakota Ring, the band that I used to be in. And that was very easy because he lived in Eastern Sydney and I lived in Eastern Sydney and it was felt very safe. I could take over my newborn infant mm-hmm. and work in a really safe environment. Some of the songs on that actually also were um, the quiet and potentially sad songs that I was just talking about that were rejects from my time with a major label. And I bought back the Masters. Right. from Epic. So the other part of it was that I'd just been dropped by a major label right when I was pregnant, which was a coincidence. I mean, I sort of asked to be dropped in a way, like we parted ways, but I was no longer signed to a major label, no longer living in New York and about to have a baby and thinking, well, what? Um, would, why would I make an album? But I was still writing songs and it's just such an important part of my life, making music that that's just what came out. And I love that album. And I, I was recently in China and I have this amazing fan who made this really excellent artwork. He's a very dedicated fan. I know that he's, I see him, his stuff because he was also on the Western social media rather than All just right. the Chinese social media, which I can't access. Um, and he made this amazing illustrated poster of all my albums. And it's got this big section. He's drawn me in all my album covers and it's hashtag justice for shadows (laughs) so that's a bit of a running joke between me and my band now I always say justice for shadows oh that's good I'm glad I brought it up yeah more more justice for shadows here yeah it's cute you mentioned epic you did so you did two albums through a major American label and at that time those songs were synced everywhere yeah I'm surprised they didn't sell more records for you Yeah. Surely, like those songs were on like Disney ads, right? Like Mm -hmm. Microsoft ads. Like I've got a list here, Dr. Pepper, Old Navy, Wendy's, plus on Moneyball, Ugly Betty, 90210, Easy A. Yeah, like they were everywhere. Like I know. Um, Yeah, I'm not surprised you wanted to leave the label. Yeah, well, I don't know. Um, Maybe a little bit to do with the time. I don't know. There could be any reason. Well, I guess the main reason is because the song, the show, 
didn't get high enough on the radio for me to get famous enough, which is why they were disappointed with me. It got to number 21 on the radio in America, which um, I was really happy with. But yeah, but that's their job. It's their job. Good point. <laughs> yeah. I love you saying that. I mean, we, we worked our guts out. I didn't realise that it's not just their job. It's like our job. What, what, the way you do that, this is what, this was my life for six months of 2008. Yeah. Me, my guitarist, Meg, backup singer and guitarist, and Debbie, the rep from the radio department, we just did domestic flights and hired cars and drove around to all around America, starting with totally but fuck nowhere, like total tiny little towns and places that you would never think about, um, but they have this plan where you start, they start with the people that they've got good relationships with and they start with there's certain some sort of certain route that you take to get more and more numbers up the radio, up the scales to get towards the big radio stations because all the main radio stations, and so what we would do is turn up with either donuts or pizza, depending on which time of day <laughs> it is, a keyboard that had a speaker in it, an an acoustic guitar, no microphones, and me and Meg would sing the show to the staff at the radio station. They don't know who we are. They're like, this is this new song. Come on, everyone, we've got some donuts. Stop your work. Come and listen to it. We'd play the song and then we'd leave and then on the way out, Debbie would be like, add it to the rotation, go on. Although, of course, she's got an American accent. She's from Seattle. (laughs) And you hope that that works as much as possible. And then we'd go back to a motel And, like, the next morning we'd meet up in the lobby and um, me and Meg slept well, but Debbie would have been out all night taking the radio station people out for drinks and dinner. Yeah. Working her butt off trying to get them to play this song. And the huge tragedy is, so I don't really blame them because we did a lot and we did, I don't know why it stopped at 21, but the big main sort of, like, five big radio stations will not play anything that's not top 20. Right, yeah. So I just needed to get literally one (laughs) number up in the charts and it would have been open to getting those big radio stations. And even at number 21, I did a bunch of kind of radio-ish type festivals and things like that, but it just wasn't, top 20 is a whole different story. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, that song, it sold 300,000. Yeah, I was going to say, you still did incredibly over there. Yeah, it still did fine. Yeah. And the other thing I think that, I don't know, maybe, maybe I got affected by this, but maybe not. But this was a time when Katy Perry was doing heaps of pop and she w- big artists would have been fine, but maybe little artists like me suffered a bit from, we were right in the changeover between like the dying out of iTunes and the pirate time. Yeah. And right. it took the labels a few years to figure out streaming. And the places that I did do really well, like I had five number one hits in places like Thailand and stuff, but they don't buy any records completely pirate i actually have my cds the fake cds <laughs> yeah so you were also just in china weren't you yeah china's become a really good market for me now and i go over there quite often i'm going again next weekend to play a festival um before covid i was going once or twice a year for the last decade and i was actually the first artist to go back since covid aussie artist oh wow um because they only opened up again in april so, yeah, I, I usually play pretty good big shows over there and um, I don't know why because we actually didn't really work China, but for some reason it just hit a pretty good fan base there. Yeah, I was going to say, do you have much idea of, like when a song 
for example, like you've had many sinks, as I mentioned, but also mm-hmm. like these other markets, like do you see spikes when something happens or does it kind of just grow and then? Yes, I think we do. Later? Right. Um, my managers let me know. I still have the same management team in New York. Yeah. So they're, they're real industry guys. Like Ron Shapiro is my manager. He used to be, he used to be the president of Atlantic Records in the 90s and signed yeah. like Jewel and people like that. He's old school. Um, they let me know if they'd see something substantial. It happened recently with my song Everything at Once. It's not from a sink. I haven't had a sink in a while. Sinks kind of change as well, especially with the strike at the moment. It's a bit bad and it's become a real desired thing. Whereas I yeah. kind of benefited it from it not being that cool in the early in my career. Now it's like the major labels really, really want their artists to get sinks. But we did notice it recently with social media, with um, my song Everything at Once became a, a viral reels in India. Oh, and wow. they definitely saw a, a spike, you know, because each one of those reels is a stream basically. And it was enough for it to he was like a few hundred thousand or something so you did actually notice and we did notice it financially and it was like oh okay that's pretty legit I can see how and why people do um put meaning on those social media things like it, it can be quite effective for artists these days you mentioned you were kind of early in terms of being like an artist whose stuff is on commercials and singing yeah. to tv and radio why do you think it is that your stuff was so like because it was picked up everywhere, like hundreds and hundreds of shows and movies. And I know. Is there anything about it? Or has anyone tried to explain it to you? <laughs> when I first arrived in LA, I was in decodering and I turned up with some demos and wanted to start working on my solo career. People said to me, your music is very licensable. Right. I, like, yeah. I didn't know what that meant, but it got explained to me. It's, you know, potential to get syncs. It's got the commercial and it's like the balance between sounding commercial but also sounding indie and not too obviously commercial like they just want especially for tv shows and movies they don't want anything too obviously pop commercial well maybe i'm wrong it depends on the project for sure but even ads they like feist had just had that big one two three four um which was written by Sally Seltman, who's an Aussie artist, on a iTunes ad, which yeah, um, was huge. And that, like, she won a Grammy, I think, from that. So there's, I guess there's something about it being, like, maybe that little bit, it's a little bit naive, it's not too sophisticated, but it's got that commercial fresh happiness. Yeah. They're like major chords usually, not too many minor chords. <laughs> like most of my songs <laughs> that have had the most syncs um, are in a major key. Yeah, bright pianos as well. I love it. Hand claps, tambourines. Yeah, it's not something that's going to pop when it's really compressed. Right. But what I have learnt is that you can't try. Sometimes I've tried to do it and those songs haven't gotten any syncs. You just have to still write an authentic song and hope that it just talks about the human condition as, you know, most songs do um, and just hope and pray that somebody hears something in it. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like I think... I'd like to do more of kind of wooing people in advertising and stuff, but there doesn't seem to be a through way to do it. Major labels must know how to do it, but um, I'm independent now and I'm still kind of on the search of like, surely there's some sort of agency or independent person that goes around and schmoozes with, same as they do with the radio, goes around and schmoozes with music supervisors. Yeah, you would think so, like a plugger. Haven't discovered one yet. You basically just hope and pray that a music supervisor likes your music and decides to pick it for a project. How did you get involved in Decoder Ring? 
Because they were already kind of a going concern when you joined, right? Mm, yeah. yeah. They'd done maybe one or two EPs or an album and an EP or something yeah. like that as an instrumental outfit with guest vocalists. And I was jamming. So I decided to do music. I used to be an actor. I don't know if you knew that, but I used to be an actor. I lived in Bondi, as all the actors did back then. Um, I was also at art school. I was studying sculpture at Kofa. Yeah, you're Angel Sister on Home and Away. So I was Angel Sister I on Home and Away. I definitely remember you being an actor. Yeah. Frankie, yeah. Yeah. 1994. I was a teen actor. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm the daughter of a jazz musician, but I, so like I always had to learn music when I was a kid, but I was like, I don't want to do music. I want to do something different, <laughs> even though I always loved it and I could always sing since I was a kid and I played piano and trumpet. I just um, wasn't that into it. But actors do need to sing and we did do a bit of singing we used to have cabaret nights and things like that and I was singing in a play actually in in Darlinghurst and um really really loving the singing part of it and really noticing that other people liked the singing part of it too so I was like maybe I should do this and I was very frustrated with acting at the time because you don't get to do anything you just have to wait to be hired and I wanted to be at home doing something not practicing Shakespeare but like making content kind of thing yeah and controlling it as well yes yeah I was about 23 or something at this point 22 23 and went all right I'm gonna I went to the conservatorium night classes and did music theory and advanced pop piano which was pretty useless because it taught you all these really weird chords that I never use like major 13ths and stuff (laughs) um (laughs) so like too smart you gotta you gotta dumb it down for pop music yeah um anyway so I started basically reaching out to anyone and everyone that I met. I was also doing the Bondi markets at the time selling vintage clothes. I used to go shopping with this actress friend of mine. We'd go to Vinnie's and buy old stuff and then sell it at the markets. So that was like my job. Okay. And I was a presenter on Cheese TV. So I had this really weird patchy life with all this different stuff going on. And, yeah, I met Tom and he was the drummer and this other dude at the markets and said, do you want to jam? Found out they were musicians, didn't know anything about decodering. <laughs> and we just started jamming. We used to jam in this house in Clovelly and we were like, let's make a band. And we couldn't think of a name, but we just used to, I, he had a Rhodes. So I used to jam on the Rhodes and Tom would play drums and this other guy would play guitar and we'd um, just muck around. And then Tom put me forward as a potential vocalist to decodering for the project that they were working on called Somersault, which was the soundtrack to the film. They'd already recorded all the music. It was a Kate Shortland film set in the snow. Yeah. And, yeah, he just brought me in to say, do you want to try and write something over this? And I actually had a meeting with Kate Shortland and she gave me some words that she felt like she'd like to hear in the song, like poetic snowscape type stuff. Right. And I wrote that song Somersault, which ended up winning the AFI for best song from a film. Yeah, wow. So then I kind of joined them, but I never really felt like I was in the band that much because they were, even though I was the only vocalist around that time and I was touring with them, you know, we did the Big Day Out tour and a bunch of festivals all over the place and our own tour and I did another album with them. I didn't feel like the singer in the band. Like it was just another instrument and I wanted more vocally driven music. So I started to work on my own stuff and we went over to South by Southwest and that's when I kind of started putting out feelers to see if there was anyone I could work with over there. And had you been writing your own stuff 
for long at that time? Like, had you amassed yeah. songs? Yeah. I had, I already had made a demo on a CD yeah. with a guy down, his name was Peter Winkler, and he had a little studio in the Bondi Pavilion. And I think I gave him 200 bucks or something like that. And he <laughs> recorded some songs for me. And I took that CD over with me. So we're talking about 2003. I wasn't in decodering yet, but I had made a demo because I went over to um, the UK and I met Sia at a festival just as a punter. Yeah. Didn't know she was a musician. Well, someone told me she was a musician, so I gave her my um, demo and we became friends in London and I, I already had that relationship and she'd already heard my demo and given me some tips and told me some people to, like, reach out to to potentially write with. And then when Decoder Ring went over to America, Sia was very helpful for us. She got us an extra gig and, you know, gave us a few industry contacts and she was very helpful to me too when I started my solo career over there. So, yeah, I had started and actually one of the early demos that I got that I'd made got me my first sync in America. So I actually got a sync as soon as I arrived in America to start off. Um, wow. Yeah. I was really lucky. So like pre-album, pre-anything? Pre-album, pre-publishing deal, pre-record deal, a demo that I'd made with one of the guys from Decodering and it got a sync on this Courtney Cox show called Dirt. Oh, that's amazing. That's a huge yeah. sync straight away. It was pretty exciting. It actually aired like pretty much the day that we got to America for me to get there to start working on solo stuff and it was on TV and I was like, wow, maybe my music is licensable. <laughs> yeah, that's got to be a good sign. Good way to yeah. start, yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> very exciting. So with this new record, mm. Silhouette is a very kind of, I don't know, it sounds like a print song or something. Mm. Is that yeah. what you're aiming for, like that throwback 80s? I was really just um, moved by the track. The track was made by Josh Schuberth. Um, who's a guy that I collaborate with sometimes. He mostly does country music, but I'd said, hey, have you got anything like upbeat? I want to make some dancey, yeah. disco-y stuff. So he sent me a demo and um, that just came out. I just thought it was cool and sexy and went with it. Yeah, it's cool. So, yeah, I probably did hear some shadows of of prints and artists like that in there for sure and maybe like the Eurythmics and stuff. Yeah, and Josh Pike also worked with you on this. yeah. Did he go to school with your husband? Yes, they yeah. went to high school together. So I've known him for yonks. And James, my husband, is um, a visual artist and he actually did Josh's, like, really early album artworks. Yeah, he has a very distinct style of art. Yeah, yeah, he does all my stuff too. But yeah. I think we're sitting in front of an old <laughs> painting of his. Um, so for years, Josh, like, I don't know that many Aussie musicians. I've known Julian Hamilton for years and years as well. Um, but I... I feel like a bit of an outsider here because I spent six years in America. Um, most of my career has been overseas. So I don't know that many people to reach out to. But I always have been saying to Josh for like the last 10 years, we're like, we should do something together one day. And um, I needed a couple more songs for this album. So I was like, right, now's the moment. I'm coming over. And I just went over to his studio in Marrickville and we wrote that song, Champion. Amazing. Which has also got an 80s feel, but in a different way. It's got more of an acoustic 80s feel or maybe like a Hall and Oatesy kind of vibe. It's got a very sweet Yacht rock. tone to it as well, that song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. <laughs> At this time, you've got the album, it's finished, you can't touch it. Yeah. But no one's heard it yet. Mm-hmm. How's, how does it feel? And you're about to go out on tour as well. And you're about yeah. to play it to people. Like, what's this 
time like? Because it's also been, what, six years since your last mm-hmm. album? Yeah. It's a bit nerve-wracking, to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm feeling a little bit anxious because it does always feel like it's this sort of baby that you're releasing out into the world. And like you say, there ain't nothing you can do. It's printed. It's uploaded. Yeah. Ready to go. I've got the CDs in a box in my house. Like I feel like I'm already letting go. You've got to let go of it now because um, you're just going to fall apart if if you take on any criticism of it or anything like that. Um, I do feel like it's a really strong album. I think it's the strongest one I've made in a while. So I'm excited for people to hear it. And, yeah, it's. I guess I'm, like, looking forward to the sense of relief as well because it's a really lot of work as an independent artist to put out a record. I've been thinking about it, obsessing about it for six months. Yeah. And um, once these shows are done and the album's out in the world, it'll be coming up to Christmas and I can just breathe a sigh of relief and actually not, focus on myself so much like I'm really pissed off at the moment because I missed Paul McCartney and I like I really regret it and I was like why didn't I get tickets and I I realized that I just am so self-obsessed at the moment because I have a record coming out and I'm kind of sick of it I'm like thinking about myself my songs what I have to say what do I look like in the photos making content videos you know stupid stuff for social media yeah promote 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 content 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 me 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 and I just this whole quarter of the year have said no to anything that's coming up that's fun that I might have that you know people actually go do this not get tickets to this nope I can't I've got to focus on my tours and my album coming out and yeah I'm like coming to the point where I'm kind of sick of that that said if you talk if you spoke to me six months ago and I just finished the record I would have been so excited and like yeah. frothing with the anticipation in a really positive way because we were in the studio mixing it, going, hell yeah, this is so cool. I'm obsessed with this in a good way. Now I'm like <laughs> sick of being obsessed with it. I need to like, I don't know, yeah. get stoned and have a listen to the record and like feel it again because now I'm kind of like <laughs> I'm like on the other side and I'm being a real machine about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, you picked it. You picked a good time because summer's coming up, so it's a good yeah, time. Yeah, it's a good time relax. to like release. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's going to be really fun to tour. We're playing a few songs from the new record, and of course, playing some songs from the old record because it's actually the 15 year anniversary of my first album. Oh, so amazing! It's really fun to play those old songs, and um, you know, I'm an artist that definitely wants to like give the give the people what they want at the show. So, <laughs> yeah, we'll do a mix to the point where you won't even give them any sad songs. I do a couple, okay. do one yeah. or two. Yeah, there have there have been. There's usually like one or two per record that are <laughs> a bit more tear jerkers. Yeah, um, you mentioned the box of CDs as well. I imagine you are an artist that sells CDs still. Is that the case? Yeah, I do. I I sell yeah. um at the shows, and I've got just got a pretty dedicated but small fan base that pre order and really want something physical and want everything yeah and yeah. I write like a handwritten note and stuff like that amazing but you know I've only ordered 200 at the moment so we'll see I'm not even counting them <laughs> I asked my managers yeah. should I be putting like a barcode and they're like no don't worry about it <laughs> well it's so limited edition it doesn't even count towards the charts mm-hmm. yeah it's basically just go. a very specialized item and that was Lanka.
Her new album, Introspectral, comes out this coming Friday, November 17th. And that night she will launch the album at the Gasometer in Melbourne before travelling to Brisbane the following Friday, November 24th, to play the Valley Loft in Fortitude Valley. And then the following night, November 25th, that's a Saturday, she'll play The Great Club in Merrickville in Sydney. You can get tickets from lankamusic.com. And my guest next week is Vicky Thorne from The Waifs. Until then... Thank you.